Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Friday, November 3rd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. Trump's sons testify in his New York civil fraud trial. George Santos survives a congressional expulsion vote. Global democracy declines for the sixth consecutive year. Bangladesh's opposition party threatens to boycott January's election. The EU urges Serbia and Kosovo to normalize their relations. Foreign nationals and injured Palestinians leave Gaza for a second day. The Bank of England leaves rates unchanged. A Tennessee ban on transgender procedures for minors is brought before the Supreme Court. The Panama Canal reduces its traffic amid an ongoing drought. And Kentucky declares a state of emergency following the collapse of a coal plant. In our first story, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump testify in their father's civil fraud trial. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, The Guardian, Fox 5 New York, Reuters, and NPR Online News. Both of Donald Trump's adult sons, Donald Jr. and Eric, testified at their father's New York civil fraud trial on Thursday. Testifying first was Don Jr., who said that even though he signed off on documents, quote, every decision I made was based on information I got from Mazars, referring to the Trump Organization's accounting firm. When Eric took the stand, state prosecutor Colleen Faraday, who works under Attorney General Letitia James, showed a letter the Trump Organization sent to Mazars in which the Trump Organization affirmed its responsibility of, quote, fair presentation under generally accepted accounting principles. In response, Eric said, I don't believe I ever saw or worked on the statement of financial condition. This follows Don Jr.'s previous testimony on Wednesday, during which he was questioned about an annual financial statement that included language saying the trustees are responsible for the document. He responded by saying, As a trustee, I have an obligation to listen to those who are expert. The case focuses on damages since Judge Arthur Engeron already ruled Trump and his sons inflated their assets to secure better loan terms. Prosecutors are seeking at least $250 million in fines, a permanent ban against Trump and his two adult sons from running businesses in New York, and a five-year commercial real estate ban against their company, as well as Trump himself. The former president is set to testify on Monday with his daughter Ivanka, also expected to take the stand next week. Though Judge Engeron has ruled that fraud was committed, the ensuing case will determine whether it was committed on purpose and how much the defendants, which include Don Jr., Eric, and their father, should be penalized. On this podcast, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa laid out the facts on this story, and now we have some divisive political narrative, starting with the anti-Trump narrative from Vanity Fair. Donald Trump Jr.'s approach to this court case shows true malfeasance. The eldest Trump son, who has been the co-vice president of the Trump Organization since 2017, simply couldn't recall our outsourced blame on the issues surrounding this trial. It's quite curious that after the Trump Organization's former CFO admitted to grand larceny and tax fraud, the company's vice president conveniently does not know how his business is run. And the Western Journal brings us a pro-Trump narrative. In true autocratic fashion, Letitia James has now broadened her scope of persecution to take down not only her political opponent, but also his children. 
from the beginning, Trump has been targeted by New York's Democratic Attorney General to end his political career. The only difference now is that she's openly showing her desire to destroy everyone close to him as well. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 65% chance that the disqualifications will be ruled unconstitutional if Trump is disqualified from holding the presidency before January 20th, 2025. And so my, my experience with the Trump uh, brood is only from The Apprentice. So that's, right. I don't know, I don't have any other information, uh, but I, I remember Ivanka seemed very impressive and then Donald Trump Jr. seemed fine. So I, I don't know what happened. Now, that was 20 years ago at this point, too. Don't forget. Right. That's not that's not recent. Um, But I don't know. It's, it's it does seem like he's like this this lightning rod. I don't know if it's kind of like with some of the of his dad's stuff. Like, is it on purpose? Is he trying to draw attention? Is it smokescreen? Yeah. Has he gone completely mad? I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> he seemed like smart and with it on Apprentice to me. Huh. So. Yeah. Now that again, that was 20 years ago right. and that was a television show. So, right. <laughs> but yeah, it, to be fair, it was a reality show. So I'm sure it was very accurate as to what oh, we were yeah, seeing. Oh yeah, absolutely. The word reality is right there. George Santos survives an expulsion vote. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC News, the Daily Mail, Reuters, the New York Post, and the Associated Press. Representative George Santos, Republican of New York, on Wednesday survived a vote to expel him from the House of Representatives as 31 Democrats joined most Republicans to withhold punishment while the embattled congressman faces his criminal trial and House Ethics Committee investigation. Last week, five of Santos' fellow New York Republicans, Representatives Anthony D'Esposito, Mark Molinaro, Nick Lalota, Brandon Williams, and Mike Lawler, introduced a privilege resolution to expel their colleague who has been caught lying about his personal history and faces 23 federal indictments on embezzlement and fraud charges. Two-thirds of the House is required to expel a sitting member, and only 179 voted in favor of expulsion, with 213 against and 19 voting present. 24 Republicans joined 155 Democrats to vote against Santos. New House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana, said Santos deserved due process and many Republicans want to see how the House investigation unfolds before making a decision. Santos said the vote wasn't a victory for him, but rather it was a victory for due process. The Long Island congressman pled not guilty to all charges, including wire fraud, credit card fraud, aggravated identity theft and falsifying records. However, his former campaign treasurer pled guilty to fraud charges and claims she helped Santos embellish his finances during the run. In addition to his trial set for September 9, 2024, Santos is being investigated by the House Ethics Committee, which has contacted 40 witnesses, reviewed more than 170,000 pages of documents, and authorized 37 subpoenas. The panel will announce its next steps by November 17th. Santos' removal was unlikely given the GOP's slim majority and the fact that only five representatives in U.S. history have ever been expelled, three during the Civil War, and two after they were convicted on public corruption charges. Expelling Santos while his case is still in progress would have been unprecedented. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. We'll start this round of spins with a Republican narrative from Fox News. 
While George Santos certainly isn't out of the woods with his impending federal trial and a House Ethics Committee investigation into his alleged campaign finance charges, the congressman was rightfully allowed to continue serving in the House. Every American is owed due process, and there's a reason why no representative has been expelled while their trial was still ongoing. Expelling Santos would have set a bad precedent, and his fate will be determined by the justice system in due course. The Democratic narrative comes from the New Republic. George Santos is arguably the most problematic member of Congress, yet he managed to survive expulsion despite members from his own party and some Democrats and state urging his removal. Santos deceived his constituents by lying about his education in addition to reprehensible fabrications about his grandparents surviving the Holocaust and his mother dying on 9-11. Now Santos faces criminal charges and a congressional investigation. That definitely sounds like sufficient grounds for expulsion. A new report says that democracy is in trouble across the globe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Euractiv, Al Jazeera, The Business Standard, Politico, and The Australian. Idea or the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance's annual report, released on Thursday, has claimed that 85 out of 173 surveyed countries saw a decline in at least one key indicator of democratic performance over the last five years. The IDEA's Global State of Democracy Indices is based upon over 100 variables under the four primary categories of representation, rights, rule of law, and participation. Consequently, the Stockholm-based think tank claimed that in 2022, global democracy declined for the sixth successive year, the longest period since records began in 1975. IDEA Secretary General Kevin Casas-Zamora stated that democracy was stagnant at best. The report pointed toward the conflict in Ukraine while claiming that, despite being the world's most democratic region, Europe has seen declines in Austria, Hungary, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal, and the UK. Turkey, Slovakia, Israel, and the US were also named as containing the erosion of democratic norms through leaders claiming to speak in the name of the people. Seema Shah, head of the IDEA's Democracy Assessment Unit, further warned that foundational building blocks of democracy are under threat. Despite the overall conclusion of the report, Program Officer Michael Rooney stated that there were signs of hope within isolated countries, pointing toward advancements in Central Europe and some parts of Africa. Thanks, Melissa. Narrative A comes from El País. The current democratic recession has only been encouraged by the decline in the global objectivity of the rule of law where conflict and corruption ravages society, foundational institutions that were once synonymous with impartiality are no more. If democracy is to be revitalized throughout the world, we must first look at reforming the systems that are meant to protect and ensure its very essence. Narrative B comes from Unheard. While this report is concerning, it must be taken with a grain of salt. International watchdogs of varying stripes have long predicted the downfall of global democracy, but it's important to note that the ratings are highly subjective. There are often hidden biases in the complex analysis of assessing the health of democracies worldwide, and catastrophic headlines do far more harm than good. 
and Metaculus brings us another nerd narrative. There's a 50% chance there will be at least 1.06 billion people living in liberal democracies throughout the world in 2025. News from Bangladesh, the opposition party threatens to boycott the election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Independent, India Today, Reuters, and The Times of India. Bangladesh's main opposition party, the Bangladesh Nationalist Party, or BNP, has warned that it will boycott January's election and delegitimize its outcome if Prime Minister Sheikh Hasina doesn't resign and allow a neutral government to oversee the vote. Abdul Moeen Khan, a former minister, said that the BNP will not legitimize a fake election, alleging that Hasina is undermining opposition parties and isn't willing to conduct a free and fair election. This comes after the BNP called for a three-day blockade of the country's highways, railways, and waterways, following the detention of its Secretary General, Mirza Fakhrul Islam Alamjir, on Sunday. Though the BNP claims police have arrested 2,300 activists since October 28, Hasina accuses the BNP of terrorism and hooliganism and refuses to hand over power to a caretaker government. On Wednesday, the second day of the blockade, a bus was set ablaze by protesters in the capital city of Dhaka. Three people were also reported killed during clashes between police and BNP supporters earlier this week. Bangladesh, ruled by Hasina's Awami League since 2009, has witnessed rising tension between the government and opposition forces. BNP leader Khaleda Zia, the two-time former prime minister, is currently under house arrest while her son and the BNP's active chairman, Tariq Rahman, is in exile. Those were the facts. We'll start with a narrative A from the New York Times. While it may not be on everyone's daily dictatorship radar, Bangladesh has slowly been taken over by an authoritarian regime, as proven by the fact that half of the BNP's 5 million members are currently facing legal cases against them. This is a clear example of political persecution. With Hasina's party either drowning her opponents in court cases to stifle their ability to campaign or outright forcing them to leave the country. And the Malaysia Sun brings us narrative B. As simplistic as it sounds, the party calling for peace and order is the right choice when voting in a national election. The Awami League, in the face of growing violence from the BNP and other like minded parties, is trying to save the country from an opposition movement that condones arson and overthrowing prime ministers. Law-abiding Bangladeshis must consider the long-term importance of the upcoming election. The EU calls on Serbia and Kosovo to advance normalization efforts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Balkan Insight, Euronews, and Fox News. EU Executive President Ursula von der Leyen traveled to Belgrade and urged both Serbia and Kosovo to intensify their efforts to normalize their relations if the two Balkan countries seek accession to the EU. Von der Leyen met with Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic in Belgrade on Tuesday, a day after she asked Serbia to deliver on de facto recognition of Kosovo. Clarifying her statement, von der Leyen said the EU expects Serbia and Kosovo to respect the agreements they made earlier this year in Macedonia to normalize their bilateral relations. The European Commission president was halfway through a four-day visit to the Western Balkans when she met with Vucic. 
and she noted that Serbia and Kosovo could make money if they settled their differences. EU leaders presented a 6 billion euro investment package for the Western Balkans at a summit last month in Albania. Per previous agreements, Serbia must recognize Kosovo as an independent state, while Kosovo must grant autonomy to the ethnic Serbs who compose a majority in the northern region. In 2008, Kosovo declared independence from Serbia, but Belgrade didn't recognize the proclamation. While Kosovo's population is 92% ethnically Albanian, Serbs are a majority in the north and remain loyal to Belgrade. While Kosovo committed to creating Serb municipalities in 2013, Prime Minister Alban Kurti has delayed the self-governed communities, claiming they will create a state within a state. Last week, France, Germany, and Italy called for the countries to adhere to their agreement, but the arrangement currently seems unlikely. The latest calls for normalization come amid growing fears of an open conflict between Belgrade and Pristina after a recent clash in northern Kosovo. Vucic said Serbia agreed to recognize personal documents from Kosovo, but Pristina refuses to create the Association of Serb Communities. Thanks, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the EU Observer. It's in the best interest of Belgrade and Pristina to adhere to previous commitments and quickly normalize relations. While it seems like Serbia is willing to compromise on recognition of Kosovan documents and license plates, Pristina is unwilling to grant autonomy to the ethnic Serbs who form a majority in Kosovo's northern region. The two sides must come together to avoid armed conflict and unlock billions of euros in investment. Here's the establishment critical narrative from the Balkanista. Serbia and the EU are trying to bully the smaller Kosovo into accepting an unfair agreement. While Serbia continues to deny the existence of Kosovo as an independent nation, ethnic Serbs living in northern Kosovo enjoy all the liberties and rights of any other citizen. There's no reason to create an association of Serbian municipalities, and Serbia is just trying to take back territory from Kosovo and increase its influence. Kosovo will not be threatened by the EU and Serbia. <laughs> and we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 4% chance there will be a military conflict between Serbia and Kosovo before January 1st, 2024. I do think, Melissa, that uh, various world powers are going to focus extra hard on making sure this situation doesn't turn hot, given all the other conflicts that are going on right now. I don't, I don't know how many more regional wars the world can handle at once. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely what crossed my mind when I just saw the headline is, OK, let's uh, let's keep everyone else calm. Let's uh, not start any more fights, mm -hmm. everyone. Right. This is I'm just looking around the globe like everyone cool. Everyone cool. Yeah. I also yeah. think that, uh, you know, say what you will about its legitimacy dangling like, hey, you two could make a lot of money together. Seems like a good tactic. I mean, I've been waiting for someone to say that to me my entire life. So I'm, you know, I might I might start a regional conflict myself, but I could be stopped if, you know, it's cut me a check, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you know, you see what works and how how that works with whom. But uh, you know, it would if work I said, very well with me if anyone's wondering. <laughs> just, it was just no problem. Yeah, you'll never in, hear. In from case me again. Scott is ever trying to start a civil war or a, or a regional conflict, um, that's it. Yeah. No problem. Cut just me a check. offer him. How much was it? Six billion euros. That's fine. And, and you know, honestly, we can negotiate. But uh, but right. sure, we we can. Let's that'll be a starting point. 
foreign nationals and injured Palestinians continue to leave Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, NBC News, CNN, Axios, and Reuters. On Thursday, foreign nationals and injured Palestinians in Gaza crossed into Egypt for a second day after the Rafah border crossing was opened the day before in a Qatar-brokered deal in coordination with the U.S. between Egypt, Israel, and Hamas. A list published by the Palestinian Border Authority that appears to be an Israel-approved register of people allowed to cross on Thursday included 596 names from 15 countries, including the U.S., Belgium, Greece, Croatia, the Netherlands, and Sri Lanka. According to the U.S., 79 Americans have left Gaza since Wednesday. Meanwhile, officials from Egypt's foreign ministry told the Wall Street Journal on Thursday that as many as 7,500 foreigners from more than 60 countries would be allowed to leave Gaza in the coming two weeks. U.S. President Biden praised this breakthrough, emphasizing the role of intense and urgent American diplomacy with its Middle Eastern partners in achieving this deal, despite a marked increase in bombardments and fighting. Though people with foreign passports and some wounded Palestinians have been allowed to enter Egypt, it's unlikely that most of the people living in the densely populated enclave will be able to leave Gaza, as neither Egypt nor Jordan are willing to accept refugees. Meanwhile, Israel confirmed on Monday that a concept paper proposing Palestinians in Gaza to be transferred to Egypt's Sinai Desert at the end of the war, which had circulated for weeks, drawing outrage in the Arab world, was indeed one of many ideas put forward by its intelligence ministry, but downplayed its seriousness. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round with a pro-establishment narrative from The Guardian. Evacuation of wounded Palestinians and foreign nationals from the war-torn territory is an important breakthrough following weeks of Israeli airstrikes across the Strip that it was forced to carry out in defense against Hamas's brutality. Though the situation in Gaza remains extremely fluid, as hospitals in Gaza struggle to treat more than 21,000 injured, the Rafah border opening is a ray of hope for the sick and injured. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Al Jazeera. Instead of pushing Israel for a ceasefire and urging it to abide by international humanitarian law, which could have saved millions of lives, the U.S. has secured safe passage for foreign nationals, primarily Americans. In his pursuit of Hamas, Netanyahu is punishing Palestine as a whole, and the U.S.'s celebration of this evacuation is a slap in the face to thousands of Palestinians who have lost everything in the crossfire. And there's a nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that Israel will lift the Gaza Strip's total blockade on four essential goods by December 2023. Uh, I was hearing on the radio that something like 20 trucks with humanitarian aid were getting in uh, a day. Uh, So that that sounded good. It's like, okay, well, 20, 20 trucks are getting in. And then someone on the Palestine said, uh, side said, uh, oh, actually, we before this, 500 trucks were coming through with aid. So, oh, not great. So we're way down. Yeah. yeah. And that was 500 coming through before there was this newly flared up crisis. Right. So you would imagine they need even more than if that was even enough, which it probably wasn't. They probably need more than that 500 number. Whatever they needed before, they need more now. And now it's way less. Yeah. So, yeah. The Bank of England keeps its rates at a 15-year high. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Evening Standard, The Independent, Sky News, CNBC, and Reuters. The Bank of England has decided to hold interest rates at 5.25 percent, its highest level in 15 years, as it warned that the U.K. economy was unlikely to see growth until 2025. The Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee 6-3 decision is its second pause in a row after 14 consecutive rate hikes. In September, the bank voted 5-4 for its first rate halt since December 2021. In a statement following the decision, the MPC claimed that it would be watching closely to see if further rate increases were needed, also commenting that it was much too early to consider rate cuts. All three committee members who did not vote for a rate pause were in favor of a quarter-point rate increase to 5.5%. The Bank of England also estimated that UK inflation was to drop below 5% in October, with last month's data to be released at the end of November. BOE Governor Andrew Bailey claimed that higher interest rates are working and inflation is falling. Despite this, Bailey affirmed that there was absolutely no room for complacency. Inflation's annual rate stood at 6.7 percent in the year to September. With the central bank claiming monetary policy would have to remain sufficiently restrictive for sufficiently long to hit its 2 percent target. The BOE's 2 percent target is forecasted to be reached at the end of 2025 six months later than previously estimated. The decision by the BOE follows recent decisions both by the European Central Bank and the U.S. Federal Reserve to also hold interest rates. Thanks, Melissa. The Spectator brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Decisions by the Bank of England will likely continue to be hard fought within its committee as the central bank walks a tightrope between tackling inflation and avoiding a recession. So far, the U.K. has avoided the doomsday predictions for its economy But challenges inevitably remain, as estimates for targeted inflation levels remain deep into 2025. Here's the establishment critical narrative from the Morning Star. With growth slowing and unemployment rising, the decision to keep interest rates at their current level is a further signal of the UK government's stagnant and ineffective policymaking. The BOE lacks transparency over inflation modeling and its long-term plan as job outlooks and quality of life continue to suffer. And there's a nerd narrative from Metaculus. There's a 50% chance that the UK's annual inflation rate for 2023 will be at least 6.99%. Yeah, you know what annoys me about this cyclical economy stuff? I feel like we're still talking about the last recession by the time the next one comes, and then we start saying, oh yeah, the good times were two or three years ago. But we right. were we didn't say that before. Nobody we were told still me the good times were happening. Right. In like 2012 or something, in 2012, 2014, people were still saying like, oh, we're recovering from 08. Oh, geez. But then another recession happened and people were like, oh, yeah, you didn't know 2014 was it? Like, that was the peak. Like, oh, man, yeah. no one told me. <laughs> uh, you know, and I also feel like companies like. Oh, sorry, can't give you a raise. You know, we're economy's right. rough in these it's times. It's and it's like, well, I don't know. That was like eight years ago. And now we're going to start another thing. So when is not the time? You're just never yeah. going to do anything is what I'm is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and that's probably what it is. Yeah, could be that. <laughs> I mean, people that are doing super well and are super rich are really good at not letting you know. Like that's that's right. Also, I've they're a lot less affected by the recessions because they know what they're doing and they plan for it. 
Like That's they know true. it's cyclical. Right. They know it's coming, and they, right. so they've got a bumper. Well, if you have a bunch of money and the economy tanks, then you just get to buy a bunch of stocks and stuff on sale. Like that's exactly. It's like, oh, it's like, oh, good. My, now I can buy this stuff way cheaper. Perfect. Right. Like you're buying you're you're buying that real estate low too. Yeah. So just so Melissa, the key is just get a bunch of money and then wait for a recession. That's okay. the plan. Um, where do I get money from? Mm. Where do I get a bunch of money? A lot. Yeah, you need a lot, not a yeah. little. Yeah. So is it where do you get your bunch of money? Hmm. If I if I had it, I wouldn't tell you, but I don't. So I'm going to give you the same answer either way. I don't know. But if okay, I did okay. know, I would also say that. So just cards right. on the table. Yeah. Right. Tennessee's ban on trans procedures for minors is brought to the Supreme Court. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, CNN, the Associated Press, NBC News, and Daily Caller. The families of three transgender youths and a doctor have asked the Supreme Court to block Tennessee's ban on transgender procedures for minors, a case that, if taken on by the court, would be the first time it weighs in on the issue of puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and sex change surgeries for children. The American Civil Liberties Union on Wednesday also petitioned the Supreme Court to review a September decision by the Sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that allowed Kentucky and Tennessee to enforce their laws prohibiting sex change procedures for people under 18 years of age. Tennessee's SB1 prohibits medical providers from performing procedures which enable a minor to identify with or live as a purported identity inconsistent with the minor's sex or treat purported discomfort or distress from a discordance between the minor's sex and asserted identity. A federal judge temporarily blocked part of the law before the Sixth Circuit overruled that decision. Tennessee's law will allow ongoing treatments to continue through March 31st, after which violators could face a $25,000 fine and other punitive measures. Over 20 states have reportedly passed laws banning or restricting sex change procedures for minors in the last three years. The ACLU claims Tennessee's ban violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The nonprofit says it's planning a similar appeal in Kentucky as various appellate courts have rendered diverging decisions on different states' bans. The 11th Circuit in Atlanta allowed Alabama to enforce its ban, while the 8th Circuit in St. Louis blocked Arkansas's restrictions. Those were the facts. We'll start with a left narrative from them. Three brave transgender teens in Tennessee are standing up for their right to necessary medical treatment in the face of right-wing lawmakers who seek to deny their identity. Gender-affirming care is a medical necessity for thousands of trans youths throughout the nation, yet Republicans seek to deny equal protection to the LGBTQ community. The court must affirm the right to the care they need. And Daily Wire brings us the right narrative spin. Tennessee has taken action to protect children who cannot smoke, drink, or sign a legal contract from undergoing life-altering procedures that are unsafe, untested, and can cause long-term physical infertility issues. Many states are rightly refusing to appease gender ideologues at the expense of America's youth, and their efforts have been upheld by appeals courts. Laws protecting children must be enforced. Panama Canal drought forces cuts to shipping traffic. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNBC, ABC News, Reuters, 
the Financial Times, and the New York Times. The Panama Canal Authority, or ACP, has announced that it has been forced to cut the daily number of ships passing through the Panama Canal yet again, as the drought-stricken region suffers under the impacts of El Nino. Beginning Friday, the daily ship quota will be reduced to 25 before being narrowed further to 18 on February 1st. The ACP has implemented several restrictions this year, with the most recent one, cutting the number from 32 to 31, having taken effect on Wednesday. Under normal conditions, the canal supports an average of 36 to 38 ships every day. However, a lack of rain has left waterways unusually dry and unable to support both the canal operations and the water needs of nearly 4 million people. According to the ACP, the recorded precipitation for October has been the lowest on record since 1950, 41% below, and so far 2023 ranks as the second driest year for the same period. With more than 3% of the world's goods moving through the canal, experts predict that the disruption could result in some vessels waiting two or more days for passage. The delays will occur just as the world enters the busiest shopping season of the year. While El Nino is the more pressing cause of the drought, the equatorial climate of Panama, one of the wettest countries in the region, has been experiencing drought conditions that experts believe have been prolonged as a result of climate change and climbing temperatures. Thanks for that story, Melissa. CNBC brings us Narrative A. Shipping is the industry most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Roughly 90% of global goods reach their destination via maritime shipping. The demand for goods is growing and the need for shipping vessels will grow. Any impacts to shipping lanes and ports could come with a costly price tag of up to $10 billion per year through the year 2050 and then grow to $25 billion annually through 2100. The maritime industry will need to dig deep to ensure it becomes sustainable. Narrative B comes from the Harvard Business Review. Maritime transport is the most critical component of international trade. Just as the industry gets back on its feet following the pandemic and Russia's war against Ukraine, it cannot afford to suffer another setback. Regulators are so overfocused on greenwashing and shipping industry that they are missing the bigger picture, overlooking the cost to companies already navigating the fallout of recent upheaval. Without properly recognizing its significance, the industry that sustains the lives of so many will inevitably face collapse. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 16% chance that the International Maritime Organization will permit more sulfur oxide pollution by the year 2030. Well, Scott, I hope you did your Christmas shopping in September. Oh my gosh, I'm so bad with it. I'm, I really am. Uh, I'm not. I end up, um, yeah. Yeah, it's not good. It's not, hey, just no, another reason to not. shop local, right? That's true. Yeah, shopping low. Uh, the idea of like going out on a day with a list of people I want to buy for and then buying something for each of those people by walking through like a quaint village downtown is is my idea of a good shopping. I've never yeah. done that. I never will do that. That That's... That's how it like should be done. It shouldn't be like a multi-month odyssey. I think it should just be like a thing where you go out and do it, right? Isn't that isn't that yeah. what malls were for? Like you go to the mall. The mall's got all the stores, yeah, got all the stuff. And just go yeah, there. No, I think and you're buy right. Your you know, it's a multi-month odyssey is is kind of too high of a bar to set. 
I was thinking there, what I know gift cards are kind of lame, but what if your thing was like everyone is getting a gift card to a, a community like a like a grassroots restaurant in your neighborhood that's really good um so that you're I'm buying you each dinner for Christmas. That's kind of I mean cool. that's that's amazing. And then also you don't get a bunch of junk. Part Nothing has problem, to physically be shipped, right? Or maybe it's right. a card that Part of the get. problem is that I think people get weird about how much the money is on the gift card. So then like mm. if you really wanted to buy the person at dinner, you kind of got to give them like 50 bucks, right? You can't just, it's not like here's $10 That's to this restaurant. Um, right. So, like, and I can't really give ha- my kids a gift card to a restaurant. No, but they I mean, want your a kids are a whole different thing. But, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but like if you were just, you know, all like all your whatever friends, everyone's getting 50, that's kind of a lot too. That like, is a you lot know, of money. Yeah, that's so true. So I don't know what you're, but, but like I hear you. If I... If I ever win the lotto or become somehow fabulously wealthy, which we're still waiting on, um, <laughs> well, I you think just have I to would tell me where you're getting your money from. You know, right, that's true. Yeah, yeah, fat chance. I would give like a gift. Depending on how rich I am, it might be like, okay, your phones and phone plans are on me forever, but I'm not gonna like give you a Christmas gift. That's just like your. That's what you get. Yeah. Or like, or if I was even richer, it's like, okay, everyone gets a car leased all the time. But then, yeah. like, I'm not going to give you something on Christmas. Like, I leased all the cars that are outside. So it's because I feel like if you gave people something at first and was like, here's 20 grand, never bother me again, that's not going to work. <laughs> but if you had this, like, sustaining thing try. where, like, or maybe, like, if I get, like, a little bit better off, like, okay, I'm buying everyone's Netflix. Like, everyone from now on, I have your Netflix. And that's what I'm doing. Like, I don't want to micromanage yeah. my generosity. That sounds really onerous, you know? Too much responsibility. And like, oh, you, you, another friend is in, or, you know, another, I made another friend. Great. I have another, just, here's the form. Just, just right. yeah, here's, here's your, your thing. Here's your Netflix package. Yeah. You I get, really enjoyed you speaking my with friend. you today. There yeah. you go. Yeah. There's Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jeff Sarandos or whatever the guy's name is that, that runs Netflix. Like don't, uh, or what is it? Uh, Reed Hastings. It's not going to be all one password. Like we're, I'm going to actually buy Netflixes for everybody. It's like, right? Oh, don't you, worry. You just yeah. give your password to five <laughs> yeah. million. People. Here's my password. There you go. <laughs> I'm such a hero. Yeah. Uh... Our final story: Kentucky declares a state of emergency after a coal plant collapse. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, NBC News, Fox News, CBS, and the Associated Press. Kentucky Governor Andy Beshear declared a state of emergency in Martin County on Wednesday after a coal plant collapsed on Tuesday night, killing one worker and leaving one other trapped. At least two workers at Martin Mine Prep Plant were reportedly removing machinery and preparing the 11-story building for demolition when it crumbled around 6.30 p.m. local time. The workers were on the bottom floor when the plant, which had been decommissioned for several years, caved in, trapping the pair under tons of rubble. Local fire departments and emergency response agencies are involved in the ongoing elaborate rescue operation, which the authorities have stated is dangerous and could take up to several days. According to Martin County Sheriff John Kirk, rescuers have been able to contact the trapped worker, but the effort to extricate him is immensely complex due to the scale of the collapse. Meanwhile, authorities have launched a probe into the incident with Lexington Coal Company, LLC, which had contracted Skeens Enterprises, LLC, for site demolition and salvage operations. The probe could take as long as six months to complete. 
Those were the facts, and we'll start with a narrative A from PBS NewsHour. This incident is a reminder of the inherent danger of the work undertaken by so many Americans across the country, especially as the nation is in a period of transforming infrastructure and removing outdated and dangerous structures. Kentucky is in the process of mobilizing all state resources to rescue these trapped workers. And NBC brings us narrative B. Aging and defunct coal plants are more susceptible to collapse as they aren't usually built with a specific planned or enforced retirement age. While the priority is to phase out the oldest and least efficient plants as the U.S. transitions to renewable energy, more must be done to keep worker safety in mind and avoid such tragedies in the future. It is not enough to say this process involves risk. Authorities must make preventative efforts in future demolition and construction projects. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Friday, November 3rd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To learn more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news. You can also download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. Verity.